Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Joe Works and Chase Byers are both here with me today, and I think that may be a first in a while. You know what? I never. I went to. I thought I did everything right today, but I never did share the opening screen, and so when I went to unshare it, it wasn't there. Almost, Chase. Almost. I almost yeah, got it all right. Maybe. And I will just double check, make sure you're on public. Oh, yeah, we're good here. there. I got that. I okay. got it. It's on Facebook. It's right. public. And and in case anyone was wondering, me and Joe worked out our differences. That's why him and I are on the webcast <laughs> together today. And 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 I, I did I did cast the check, Chase, and it cleared. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> These guys, if, if you've never if you've never listened to us before, good. all that is totally bogus. These guys are <laughs> around. All right. Um, so we've been looking at Jesus last week. Uh, let's just do a quick review and then we'll start it in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 17. But doing a quick review, Jesus comes in on what we would say is Sunday, riding a donkey from the Mount of Olives coming from the east into the city, cleanses the temple, and that provokes uh, some consternation on the part of the religious leaders. And they want to know what, what gives you the right to do this? By what authority do you do this? He spends the night in Bethany, and he comes in each day back into Jerusalem, and he's teaching. What kinds of things is he saying as he's teaching? Well, he's intensifying the, the, the conflict uh, climate. Um, he is not allowing the, the leaders, you know, they, they did not want to crucify him during the Passover. Um, he, is, he is pushing... A, the, the issues with them being very strong with his teaching, not that he hasn't been in the past, but he's being rather consistent with it, especially pointing out that they are going to be destroyed, that the leadership is going to, to uh, be judged um, through various parables, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, for example. I think it's interesting that you say you mentioned and we saw this that they wanted to have him put to death but they didn't want to do it during the feast they wanted to wait till after that and you mentioned the passover feast that's the feast that's coming up and and jesus is is bringing things to a point of of decision really and he's doing so by being very direct in his condemnation of the pharisees as hypocrites and his in his parables saying things like uh, basically, the harlots and the tax collectors are going to go into the kingdom before you guys. Even Gentiles, he intimates, are going to have a part in the kingdom, and you guys, the religious leaders of Israel, are not. And he does that in his parables. He does that very directly. Um, but going back to the thought that they were wanting to wait till after the Passover feast to deal with him, and he is bringing things to a head, he is, as was as we've talked about in previous webcasts, he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, and, and it's going to take place at about the time of Passover. Um, so, all right, so that's, that's what's been going on. Uh, we noted Matthew chapter 23, where he just repeatedly calls the Pharisees and the scribes out as hypocrites. We noted chapter 24, where he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, we, we Then last week, we talked about the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, where there's a bit of a flashback to what happened a few days earlier when he was at this dinner in Bethany, and, and uh, John tells us it was Judas especially who was rebuking Mary for anointing Jesus with this very valuable ointment, and Matthew then connects that with, uh, just in his telling of it, he, he immediately thereafter tells us 
that Judas goes out to betray Jesus. Jesus had called, called, he'd really called out Judas and the other disciples. The other disciples didn't have the same motive that Judas did. Judas was wanting to get his hands on the money that that ointment could have been sold for. And then he's, he's kind of, you know, shot down, called out. And so uh, he goes out and seeks opportunity to betray Jesus, and he makes the deal to uh, lead the opponents of Jesus to where he would be apart from the crowds at a time they could take him for 30 pieces of silver. So let's pick it up in verse 17. Chase, how about reading 17 through 19? I'd love to. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did just as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Thoughts, comments on that little paragraph? It really is interesting that there, Jesus is sending them over to prepare the Passover meal because Jesus himself will be the Passover meal um, himself. So yeah. it just really is interesting to think about the provision that Jesus is sending them to make provision for when really the provision has already been made as he himself is the sacrifice. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, somebody might be a little puzzled by the phrase now on the first day of unleavened bread. So if, if the, the evening that the Passover would have been e eaten, that day is the first day of unleavened bread. And there's a week, a seven day period when they would have no, no leaven in their houses. Um, so, so they're going to eat the Passover meal that evening. Um, we come to verse 20. Joe, how about taking us from 20 to 25? Now, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Then he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you've said it. That's interesting. You know, you can imagine the different motives, the others of the 12 saying, is it I? Would I, I wouldn't, you don't think it's I, would I do it? And, and Judas may be just chiming in to either sound like the rest of them, or perhaps wondering, do, do you know, are, are you aware of what I'm up to? Is it I? I, I also just like to point out i mean none of them saw this coming um I, they all trusted each other at this point they all wouldn't have expected this i mean it tells us that they were all deeply grieved when they heard jesus say this it it wasn't as if they were all like oh yeah judas has been stealing from the money bag from, from the beginning it's probably going to be him you know yeah they weren't no one was onto this uh, no. this was a complete shock um to these it, 12 disciples as a matter of fact john even tells us that when uh when then Judas says, what you do, do quickly. And so after dipping the bread and handing it to Judas, so he's the one who eats the bread, then, then he leaves and uh, he goes out to betray Jesus. And the other disciples, the others of the 12 thought maybe Jesus was sending him to, to get some preparations for the feast or... Uh, I forget what it was they thought he was going. Oh, to yeah. no, that's right. Yeah, to help the poor. I think even. Let's see. Let's yes, turn. I'll turn yes. over there real quickly. I, I believe that's right. John thirteen verse twenty nine. Some thought. Well, let's. I'll start back in verse twenty eight. 
Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. That's when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. They didn't know what, what Jesus meant. Verse 29, for some thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus said to him, buy what things we have need of for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Yeah, so you're right both times. So they, they just, they didn't have a clue. Yeah. And I just also, I like to point that out because they, um, isn't that what we do with friends that we trust? We just, even sometimes when something is outright wrong that they're doing, we still try to find a way to justify what they're doing and say, oh, well, well, maybe it was this, or maybe it was that. And it just goes to show how much they trusted Judas and yeah. didn't expect this from him. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go on and let's come down to um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 is, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave to the disciples and said, take eat this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave to them saying, drink ye all of it. I think this translation may be a little ambiguous. He's not saying drink all of the cup. He's saying all of you drink of it. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many under remission of sins. But I say unto you, I shall not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. All right, there's some things we need to talk about here. What do you want to talk about here? Well, uh, what does Jesus mean by saying, take, eat, this is my body? Yeah, start with that. Yeah, I mean, we know Jesus did not physically break off a piece of his own body, but he is symbolically talking about the bread in which they're eating is then, I think, symbolic of his body that's going to be broken. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's important to point out, obviously, as we think about the Lord's Supper we partake now. Yeah, and it's, you know, of course, the, the Catholic Church will point to this and say, he says, this is my body. So, so they'll say, see, he, he meant it literally turns into can, his body. Of course, his body. Can is, I say the word? Okay. Can I say it? Transubstantiation. I don't know. Say it again. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. I got really good at saying that word, so I like to say it anytime I get a chance. Yeah. You so got you get pericory or whatever, Joe, and then Jeff gets all the other words. So I figured stop. I'd get transubstantiation. or however you say the word. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So transubstantiation, yes, the substance is changed. That's the idea in the Catholic Church teaching that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. And so the Catholic Church teaches that Jesus' body is, is sacrificed repeatedly every time that people eat what they call the Mass or the Lord's Supper. And um, you look at this passage, and, and certainly he says, this is my body. And then he, he, gives them, he tells them to drink of the cup, and he says, this is my blood. But then in verse 29, he says, I shall not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. So which is it? Yeah, in fact, we've got a, a Pat's mentioning this various point that he calls it the fruit of the vine. So he calls it his, his blood and he calls it the fruit of the vine. Obviously, one of those things has to be figurative, which makes the most sense if he's sitting there or reclining there and saying this cup that has the juice of the grape in it is my blood which makes the most sense that when he says it's my blood that that's figurative or when he says it's the fruit of the vine that that's figurative i think that answer is pretty obvious all right um, i think it's go ahead just mention here the inspired commentary on this text 
when Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians 11, it seems like one of the things that he's stressing there, two, two things in particular. One is he says, on the same night in which he was betrayed, I think that's really powerful. Uh, you know, the, this could have been done at any point and it would have had the tremendous value, right? But the significance of him doing it on the night in which he's betrayed. Right. Um, right. Uh, I mean, from the Lord's vantage point. Um, and then to do this in remembrance of me each time. So I had a Bible study last night with some ladies and was making the point, there's a connection between baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're baptized into the body of Christ. Jesus in John uh, 6 talked about the necessity of eating his body and drinking his blood. And, and that's not just talking about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is, you know, is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 as a communion, a sharing of his blood and his body. And so people who've been baptized into Christ's body and thus participate in his, in his sacrifice, their sins being punished in his crucifixion, they express their participation in his body by drinking of his body and eating of a uh, drinking of his blood and eating of his body it is of course symbolic but it is symbolic of their participation in him and his being in them there's another thing that I, that has become uh significant in my mind in in the recent past in verse 27 he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink ye all of it for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. He says, my blood of the covenant. That was an expression that had been used once earlier. Back when Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt and then gone up to the mountain and gotten God's law and gotten the instructions about how to purify the people and define them as God's covenant people, Moses had taken blood and he had sprinkled it upon various things and upon the people to purify them. And he said this in verse 8 of Exodus 24. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So God defined a people at that time, and they were his people. And he said, I am holy, and you shall be holy, for I am holy and you're going to be my people. I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And now Jesus is making a new covenant, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. I think that language would have had a meaningful ring in the ears of the apostles. And so, Amen. maybe going on there with the rest of that uh, verse, for the remission of sins, um, uh, does... Uh, um, does that mean that he was doing this because their sins had been forgiven? No, no, no. He had to do this for their sins to be forgiven. And yet, when we read in Acts 2, and uh, the instructions is repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, many people will teach there that you ought to be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Um, uh, it's so clear here. It's uh, the same language. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so to, to say that baptism is not necessary, but we do it because Jesus 
we do it because our sins are forgiven, makes a mockery even of uh, then the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus didn't have to die. He died because we are forgiven. That doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. Right, good. Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. So now they've, they've eaten this Passover supper. Jesus has taken the bread and the cup that was there, and he has he has given new significance to it. He has talked about his bread, his body, and his blood. Luke tells us that he said, do this in remembrance of me. So he's instituting the Lord's Supper that, that Christians are to partake of on the first day of the week. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, goes back to, to this event, this night, uh, as it was revealed to him. Paul wasn't present when this happened, of course, but it was revealed to him what Jesus said, and Paul instructs the Christians to whom he's writing, they, they need to do this. They need to remember Christ's death in, in this way. And, and so then, uh, verse 30, they, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives, again, is just east of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so you would leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, cross the Kidron Brook, and start up the Mount of Olives. And of course, it's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives that is the place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Chase, why don't you take us from verse 31 through verse 35? Yeah. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. So, yeah. So yeah, in the beginning, Jesus had said all of them are going to fall away. And it's bookended there at the end of verse 35 with all the disciples saying the same thing as Peter, that they have even if they have to die with Jesus, they will. Yeah. I, I like to point out in this section, it wasn't just Peter who was saying he was going to die with Christ, but all of them had been saying the same exact thing as well. Uh, it will focus in on Peter, obviously, because Jesus had said he would deny him three times, but all the disciples had believed they would be by Jesus' side all the way to the end. Yeah, it's pretty easy to say that when you don't really think that anything bad is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's sort of like when we sing Anywhere with Jesus, um, uh, you know, that's, a, that ought to be a challenging song for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even, I think I would even say in marriage vows, um, I, uh -huh. I've only been married four years last Wednesday and I kind of laugh at the vows that I made because I had no idea what I was vowing to. I'm very thankful I did. And I vowed to the right person, but each and every year that goes by, I'm like, wow, that's really a lot for a 21 year old to have said he was going to upkeep. Yeah. And I'm sure the guy, same, you guys can say the same thing with, with your spouses as well. But the point being, these disciples, it's easy to say those things when things are easy. Um, it's when things get hard is when our words will be pressed. And, and Peter seems to have been somebody who uh, was a little bit bold in his proclamations and, and kind of overestimated himself sometimes um, and was quick to say things without thinking them out. Uh, there are various occasions earlier than this where you'll remember when Peter was uh, with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, and he, he had to speak up and say something. I think, it, is it Mark or Luke that says, I think it's Mark that says, he's, no, yeah. is it Luke? No, Mark. Mark, Mark. Says, not knowing 
not knowing what to say, he said, Lord, shall we build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you? Yeah, and of course, he was making a mistake because he was putting Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all on the same plane as peers. And uh, so the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. But, you know, that's an occasion when you think a lot of people would have kind of, wow, here's Jesus and there's Moses and there's Elijah. I think I'm just going to sit back and be quiet, <laughs> but not Peter. Uh, what's another occasion? Well, I, I'll tell you one uh, in Matthew 16, when Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be raised from this. Peter says, not so, Lord. He said, no, <laughs> he just speaks up. Uh, Matthew 14, when Jesus comes walking across the water in the storm, and Jesus said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee upon the waters. So I'll walk on the water. And he got out and started walking on the water, but then he saw the wind in the waves and started sinking. He committed himself to more than he was prepared to, to carry out at times. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. This one here, it's sort of fitting that this is the, the final uh, instance, I, I guess, of, of Peter's uh, foot and mouth disease. Um, uh, you know, here he is, not just disagreeing with Jesus, but Jesus is quoting scripture. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to disagree with scripture or disagree with the Lord, but when the Lord quotes scripture, um, uh, you know, that should have really settled it for, for Peter and the other disciples. Yeah, and we have uh, Pat again, one of our listeners comments um, in Zechariah chapter 13, you have this lang language about smiting the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. This is this has been prophesied. Uh, one other thought, you know, in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus tells Peter, do you love me more than these? And there's this debate. Some people think he's talking, he's saying, do you love me more than you love these fish? And other people think he's saying, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Do you love me more than everybody else does? I think that's what he's asking, Peter. And, and here, I think you see part of the reason Peter, Jesus would ask Peter that. Peter says, if all shall be offended in you, I will never be offended. In other words, I love you more than everybody else does. Um, and I think that's what Jesus is getting at in John 20. Any other thoughts on this section right here? Let's go to verse 36. Joe, you want to start in verse 36 and take us down through verse, um, you know what, take us down through verse 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and greatly distressed. He said to them, my sorrow is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Any comments on this section either of you have? So there's some things that we could talk about, but this is pretty straightforward reading. I think the one question that people struggle with is, what does Jesus mean when he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me? Uh, unless you, one of you two want to talk about that, I'm, I'll move on. Well, he, he had already talked about previously when James and John wanted to sit on his left and his right, and he said, can you drink the cup? 
you know, they were thinking the cup of the king. Yeah. He's talking about a cup of sorrow or, or of death. Yeah, exactly. I, mm-hmm. I also just like to point out there's something more going on here than just grieving the possibility of being killed on a Roman cross. Um, the, the weight of the sin that's going to be on the shoulders of the son of man is deep in thought here, I believe. So I think this is a helpful place to go to show it was much more than just a Roman crucifixion. We're talking about bearing the sins of the entire world. And, and so one so one of the things that I think is valuable to keep in mind then is we think of his suffering on the cross, but his suffering begins before that. Uh, this whole night, this agony as he's anticipating what's what's what lies before him the next day. And as we're going to see in the next little bit here, the hours that he is accused all during this night after he's taken into custody. We come to verse 40. Uh, uh, Jeff, just yeah. one other quick thing. I, I wonder if we should make a connection or or see a somewhat of a parallel. When, when Paul was about to die in 2 Timothy 4, he talks about being poured out as a drink offering. And uh, we think about that the, the drink offering being the last part of the sacrifice being made, um, Numbers 28, Numbers 15. Um, uh, maybe there's some some strong uh, Hebrew uh, significance there that, that we don't quite see in connection with the sacrifices. Oh, that's an interesting thought. I had not, yeah, I had not made that connection. That's an interesting thought, Joe. Well, yeah. And going along with that, the idea in Jeremiah of drinking the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot. To be and, and he is taking the wrath of God, the wrath of God for our sins upon himself right. in, in right. this death on the cross. So yeah. absolutely he is. Yeah. yeah. So that allusion to, to drinking the cup of wrath. Yeah. All right. So verse 40, he comes unto the disciples and finds them sleeping. And says to Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, that's a passage that often gets quoted, but I wonder how many people who quote that remember the context in which that was said. Jesus had come and and really he had, I don't know, what's the expression I want to use here? He'd put himself on the line, put himself at risk. I'm not sure what would be the best expression, but he has put himself in human form and subjected himself to all the trials of human existence and human life. And in that, in doing so, has nonetheless continued to do the will of the Father so that he could live this life without sin. We live this life and we sometimes feel like the burden is too great. And well, I couldn't help it. I just, you know, the temptation was too strong. Um, and, and the Lord understands that, that that's the, the, the reality of our existence. But the fact is, Jesus did it without sin. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, there is no temptation, 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, there's no temptation taken us, but such as common to man, and God gives us the way of escape, uh, that we may be able to endure it. But, but the fact is, we all fail. Uh, the flesh is is weak. The spirit may be willing. You kind of see this in Romans, the seventh chapter, where you see the picture of a, a man who wants to be righteous, but if he doesn't have the grace of God in Jesus Christ as an option for him, however much he wants to be righteous, he finds his flesh is weak, and he ends up condemned under sin. Uh, any thoughts here before we go on? 
Verse 42, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying again the same words. Have you ever, you guys, have you ever had something uh, that just weighed on you so heavily that you were greatly concerned about that you didn't, you were not satisfied going to God with this concern in prayer once, that you found the need to go back time and again. Yes. Yeah, I think most of us have. And, and uh, sometimes though you, you run across the idea that, well, if you ask God more than once, uh, then that's not faith. I, I certainly can't, I certainly cannot uh, besmirch Jesus's faith here. Uh, he's putting his faith in God, in the Father. It seems fairly consistent that faith involves repeatedly seeking the, the Lord's will and uh, and going to him seeking favor and uh, calling upon him to uh, be merciful or, or acting. Daniel does that. Paul does that. Um, we, we see regularly godly people in Scripture coming to God on on a continual basis, even about the same thing. And then we get to verse 45, and he comes to the disciples and says to them, sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It seems that he has kind of, he has gained his composure. He is prepared now. He's ready. Don't you get that impression? Well, I, I think he, he is resolved. I think he is he recognizes what, what is before him. Uh, maybe also recognizing his patience with the disciples. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he doesn't throw them out. Um, Luke's account tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow. Um, okay. they, they weren't being purposefully, superficially negligent. Um, uh, they were just overcome. Yeah, they needed yes. to do better. We need to do better. Um, uh, but I really appreciate the, seeing the text here that the Lord in his darkest hour is showing extreme long suffering with his uh, disciples. And then he says, Arise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that betrays me. And while he yet spoke, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, gave them a sign, the people that he that had been hired by. He gave them a sign, saying, Whomso, or, or I guess the mob that he came with, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that is he. If Jesus has been in the temple every day teaching, and he's as famous as he is, why does he need to be pointed out by Judas? It's uh, a good question. I think, I think it's a very practical situation. It's one thing when you see somebody in broad daylight in the temple and everybody's gathered around him and he's teaching. And yes, you might recognize him if you saw him on the street a few hours later. But unless you know him intimately, to go out into a dark tree-covered hillside and there's a few people there and they're probably where, you know, they, they had these, I uh, can't remember what the term for it is, but these garments where they could be pulled up over the head. And in the cool of the evening, it's very possible that Jesus and his 
and the 12 or those who are with him, the 11, I guess, at this point, they, they would all be like that. It'd be hard to tell them apart unless you intimately knew him, knew him by his posture, his walk, that kind of thing. Judas can lead them to him at night when he's away from the crowds where, where, they, where they can seize Jesus without having the crowds descend upon them. And yet they're going to have trouble recognizing him in that situation. And so Judas, I'll take you to him and I'll kiss him and you'll know that's him. Is it possible to just, I mean, they don't want any margin for error here. They're, they're going to do something very serious with Jesus. Yeah. And they want to make sure with 100% certainty they have the right person. And so what better way to do that than to get one of his own disciples to identify him? Yeah. And on, on multiple occasions, he had either disguised himself and gone through the crowd or uh, somehow they didn't recognize him. They're, they're discussing amongst themselves whether he's the Christ in the Gospel of John, and uh, he's right there, and they don't even recognize that, that he was the one that they've been talking about. Um, we sort of always picture him with this perfectly manicured beard and halo around his head, and uh, you know, I think you're right. That's not something that they, that they don't want to make any mistake. They need to know exactly who he is. And, and it could be, too, that the mob that Judas leads to, or Judas leads to Jesus, that they are not people who had been standing right. in the temple listening to Jesus, whereas the Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with uh, had been. Well, let's pick it up in verse, um, verse 49. Uh, straightway, he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi. What does Rabbi mean? Teacher. And kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, friend, do that for which you are come. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. It's kind of interesting, Jesus re replied to Judas, friend. Judas not acting much like a friend here. No, but don't we have a, an Old Testament prophecy uh, talking about the, the trusted friend that was going to betray him? Tell me. Is it Psalm 69? Is that right? Psalm 69. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, it's not clicking with me. Psalm 69 certainly has some messianic elements in it. Um, somehow that phrase is not coming to mind. Help me out here. Uh, well, I'll have to, I, I probably Psalm spoke too quickly. 41? 41 is where he says, uh, where David writes, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, lifts his heel against me. It's Psalm yeah, 41, yeah. 9. Is that yeah, what that's you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of interesting. I had not thought about that to make that connection. Of course, that's quoted by Jesus in John 13. But the idea that David uh, kind of putting David, of course, is betrayed by Absalom and Absalom goes out and kills himself afterward. Jesus is betrayed by Judas and Judas goes out and kills himself afterward. And so David represents the Christ and Absalom represents Judas. And David writing about that says even my close friend so it's kind of i had not thought about this joe so that when jesus is friend it could be it could be that that's part of jesus way of calling attention for the record this is a fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the relationship of ahithophel to david huh Interesting. Did I say a moment a, hith, a moment ago? Did I say it correctly? A Hithbel betrayed David. I think I, I think you said Absalom, Absalom earlier. Absalom. But yeah. So Absalom was taking the throne from David, but it was a Hithbel who foreshadowed Judas. A Hithbel right. is the one who went out and killed himself afterwards. Yeah. Say it one more time. All right. So if I got it right now, 
Yeah. You you <laughs> okay. All right. You guys don't don't let me don't let something like that slide. Call me on that. All right. So we come to verse um, 51. 50, Chase, go ahead. Get us all the way through. Well, I guess uh, through 56. We need to make some progress here. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out, drew out his sword, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that I must, it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All right. Thoughts on this section? Uh, I don't think he was aiming for the ear. Um, I think uh, he was aiming for something else. And we actually learned from other accounts that this was actually Peter who right. was the one that picked up the sword to do this. And we also learned that, that the servant of the high priest, his name was Malchus. So Peter took his ear off. And I think you're right. Peter was, uh, his adrenaline rushing. He's ready to defend Jesus. Now, Jesus has just told him, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, if everybody denies you, I won't. And that, right now, Peter's bold. He, he's got his sword out and he's ready to go. And Jesus rebukes him. And I, I guess I can understand if I'm Peter. Yep. I'm defending Jesus. And he, he says, don't, you, don't do that. And, and I, I might be confused. Yep. What's wrong here? Yes, I, I think that's exactly what goes on with Peter. I think he's he's ready. He's amped up. The adrenaline, the adrenaline's hit. He, he goes to defend Jesus. Then he's rebuked for it. Then Jesus, in the other accounts, heals that guy's ear back. Yep. I think Peter is left kind of reeling. He's like, what, what, what do you want me to do? If, if this isn't what you need me here for, then I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to do. I can and certainly I imagine that. Yes, and I, I think it frustrates and embarrasses Peter. He doesn't know what to do. And so we see he just leaves with all the others. He's like, well, you know what? If, if this isn't what this was all about, then I don't know what to do. And so uh, to me, this, this really fits with what he had said earlier. Uh, I, I'm prepared to die for you. And I think sometimes we, I've heard people comment, and my, I may have as well, said Peter was willing to kill for him, but he wasn't willing to die for him. I suspect that what's going on more in his mind is that he is, he's, he's laying his life on the line. You know, he realizes that as he draws the sword and swings it, somebody else might get him. It's almost as if he is ready to die for, for Jesus at this moment. He, he's ready to go into a battle. The question is more whether he's willing to die without a physical sword, but rather with a spiritual sword in his hand. So given that, let's do our best to get down to when he does deny the Lord. So verse 57, they, they that had taken Jesus led him away to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So just everybody notice here, Jesus is hauled off to the leaders of the Jews, the very leaders whom he has been rebuking all week long. But Peter followed him afar off under the court of the high priest and entered in and sat with the officers to see the end. And I, I picture this as in various countries that you'll see in a city, houses that are situated around a courtyard. That, that as you go down the road, there may be a wall, but you go through a door of that wall and you're into an area where there's this just 
uh, a house built around a courtyard. And Peter is in the courtyard, and uh, it says in verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council sought false witness against Jesus, that they might put him to death. And they found it not, though many false witnesses came. But afterward came two and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Of course, that's from John chapter uh, John chapter 2, where Jesus said something similar. But what he was talking about, it says, is the temple of his body. He would raise it up in three days. They're going to make something else out of that. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said unto him, do you answer nothing? What is it which these witnesses have against you? And Jesus held his peace. And we might think back to Isaiah 53, like a lamb that is silent before shearers. Um, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest said unto him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, you said, you said it, or thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, henceforth you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's language that we've seen already. We've talked about earlier in previous weeks. That's language associated with God coming in judgment. And so the high priest in verse 65 rent his garment saying, he's spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we've heard the, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's worthy of death. And then did they spit in his face and buffet him. And some smote him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that struck thee? Now we get to the section uh, that we've alluded to earlier. Joe, why don't you pick it up in verse 69? Through, seven, uh, through 75. Why don't you just go as far as you want to until you, until you want to make some comments on it. 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were, with, who were there, this fellow also is with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied the oath. I do not know the man. After a while, those who stood by came to him and said to Peter, surely you are one of them because your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Then he went out and wept bitterly. All right. Thoughts on this. This is obviously what Jesus was referring to when he said, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Thoughts? Yeah. So he was willing to, to fight for Jesus, but now it looks like Jesus has lost. Jesus is accepting his, his death and the demise and, and so forth. And so Peter is distraught. Peter is, is in a hopeless situation. And while he'd be willing to stand up to a mob with swords and torches, he's afraid of two girls. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's just the devil attacks us in a lot of different ways and at different times. And we just need to always seek to uh, find the courage, even when we may be sort of out of gas. Uh, so Chase, you used the language earlier, amped up. You said Peter was amped up. I think I may have said his adrenaline was flowing when he was there in the garden. That's the way it seems. Sometimes it's easier for us in a moment of excitement and anger and passion to be bold and courageous than it is in a moment of reflection 
and we're thinking about the consequences and really aware I'm making a, a, a deliberate decision here to take a stand. Sometimes that, that right there, that's the difference between feelings and conviction. Yeah, yeah. That's and that is something it. we have got to be so careful of. Um, and the scriptures talk a lot about that um, in Luke 14 when Jesus is warning about just hastily picking up your cross and following after him but you need to count the cost of discipleship he's really addressing people who just based off of feelings and on a whim are deciding to follow him rather than truly counting the cost and being convicted and mm -hmm. this is where peter he i think is starting to realize that he was all based off feelings there was no true conviction but that will be a change that peter will make yeah joe any other thoughts um, just thinking about the response uh, that Peter had, uh, you know, it's we we can we can pick him apart here pretty bad, but he went out and wept bitterly. Um, yeah. uh, you know, when when we recognize that we've disappointed the Lord, this is the reaction. Um, Luke's account includes a little detail when Jesus when Jesus is standing inside the house, Peter out in the courtyard. Apparently, there's a line of sight between them. And when Peter has denied Jesus the third time and the cock crows, Luke tells us in chapter 22 and verse 61, the Lord turned and looked mm -hmm. upon Peter. Yeah. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said unto him before the cock crow this day, thou shalt deny me thrice. Just that moment when Jesus turns and looks at him. And you know what? We're all going to stand before the judgment. And we're going to stand before Jesus who died for our sins. And he's going to look at us. And we, we want to be able to stand there and receive his look with the confidence that we are in his love, not with the fear that we have lived a life of betrayal. All right, guys. Thank you. Very good. See everybody next week. Bye-bye.